Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. The fact that San Francisco is highly inaffordable does not make it overvalued. So there are places that have experienced certain housing shortage that have become shifted upwards in their affordability, so to say. So that's what happens in big cities. Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with 1 million to 100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead. So they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then the last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about their pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E, you're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. 
For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of fluffy stuff. And first off, hope you're having a best ever weekend because today is Saturday. have a special segment for you called Situation Saturday. And well, we have a situation and I think everyone is in this situation in some form or fashion. We are navigating the pandemic as real estate investors and entrepreneurs. And today's guest is a financial engineer, and he's going to help us answer the question, is the current real estate market overvalued? So with us today, Stefan Svetskov. How you doing, Stefan? Hey, good. Thanks, Joe, for having me. My pleasure. I'm grateful that you're on the show. A little bit about Stefan, and then we'll get right into it. He's a financial engineer. He's got three years of multifamily investing experience. He's got a portfolio in New Jersey, a three-unit and a four-unit, and he's got a duplex in New York. He's based in New Jersey. Again, his focus is he's a financial engineer. He's based in New Jersey. So first, Stefan, will you give us a brief background about yourself, tell us about what you're focused on, and then let's go right into the real estate market. Yeah, of course, Joe. So as you mentioned, I'm a financial engineer, so I've been doing that for 10 years. But in the recent three years, I've been investing in multifamily close to New York City, basically. So that is my private experience. So I've been mainly doing two to four unit private investments. So not raising capital, not syndications, not things like that, just personal investments on my end. So I have a data analytics company in the analytics, and that's some of the work I'm going to talk about here, because basically we do property analytics, we do different markets, market analysis, things like that. Mm -hmm. So that is some of the focus, essentially applying some of my technical financial engineering or data analysis skills to the real estate world. I love it. I am always looking forward to having conversations with people who look at the real estate market from an objective analytical standpoint and learn what they've discovered. So please tell us, what have you discovered? So the one thing I wanted to draw people's attention to, because you know investors and in, uh, syndicators really like to look at different demographic trends and you know, where, where job growth is, population growth, things like that. But one thing that I feel is overlooked is where do valuations stand? So if we have a given market, Everybody, an investor would pick specific properties that are underwrought. And that's a great strategy. It's an excellent strategy considering real estate is an inefficient market. But again, do we know where the real estate market is standing in those areas? Is it really, is it overvalued? Is it fairly valued, et cetera? We don't usually, at least if I was feeling myself, I never had a sense of this. So that is like part of this study. So it was inspired by finance for sure. So for example, there is a guy, John Hussman, he's a PhD. He runs a hedge fund. So he had a metric that would predict, sort of would correlate to subsequent drops in the stock market. And some of you know, you know the main index over there is like S&P 500. So he had a metric that would predict 91% correlation to subsequent drops in the stock market. Now, one would not have the timing right, et cetera, et cetera. But again, that is a measure of, is at the point of time, the market overvalued? And that performed better than price earnings ratios. That would be the usual most common metric over there. So that's one thing that inspired me. A second thing that inspired me is before 2007, so in 2005, 2006, so there was a guy in Massachusetts, his name is Ingo Windsor. 
So he was on CNN at the time. So he was basically speaking that certain markets, so not all markets, that certain markets are dangerously overvalued. So he's speaking about markets in California, Florida, etc. So he was doing that in 2005. He was later again on TV in 2006. And it was pretty much the same story. Specific cities, substantially overpriced. So one didn't have to wait till 2007 to know this. One doesn't have to wait now. And it's not really overvalued now to this extent. But these are some things that inspired me. And so I wanted to share basically with your listeners some of my findings. I thought that could be interesting and useful to everyone pretty much as an investor. So in 2007... Markets that were overvalued were, for example, California, Arizona, Florida. So they were around 50%. Let's say Arizona was 55% overvalued. So Nevada was 49% overvalued. And here, when I say overvalued, the measure that seems to work best, it's a really simple measure. It is finds a window, price-income ratios, takes an average or whichever metric on that, and then percentage deviation from that at the current point of time. And that gives us a valuation. So for example, if the historical price-income ratio in California has been at eight, let's say prices are eight times incomes or something like that. So suppose that that's not the, mm-hmm. the correct number. And then if it currently is standing at 10, okay, that would be a 25% overvalued market. So this measure is the simplest way to do it. And just so I'm tracking correctly, when you say the price, I understand the income. Income is household income. And price is that single family homes? Right. So again, that's not going to be commercial multifamily, correct? Got it. All right. So we're talking single family home prices and household incomes. Correct. Well, that would be FHFA prices, so Federal Housing Finance Agency. I believe they have some small multifamily in there, but it would be more like single, small multifamily. Okay. So under five units. Yeah, correct. Okay. So that's a different topic. Now, with regards to effects on commercial multifamily, that's obviously driven by different factors. I did a study on that. There's still high correlation to commercial. So it's still fundamentally the same asset. It's not to say that, okay, even that because five units is priced differently because appraisal is different, it doesn't really, it's still fundamentally the same asset. It's still driven by similar dynamics, by sort of household incomes in different areas, et cetera. So correlation to that was over 95% or something. It's really close. Just to make sure I just heard you correctly, did you just say that correlation with commercial is 95% to what you're finding with the single family residential? Okay, so FHFA that includes single family and I believe includes some small multifamily in it. So FHFA home prices versus what I have, I just am looking at the slide right now, versus COSTAR commercial sale index. Mm-hmm. That had 97% returns basis on prices basis. On returns basis would be less. But yeah, so kind of over the one grand, the two should be in line. It's of course a different asset. It's priced differently. We know the differences of that in terms of commercial versus residential. Got it. Okay. So what you're talking about now is primarily residential, but there's likely a high degree of correlation with commercial. And thanks for clarifying that. But absolutely, it's primarily residential, so it would impact more listeners who are purchasing one up to four units, I would say, the most. Got it. From there, in 2007, markets like specifically California, Arizona, Nevada, and Florida, those were the four most overvalued markets. Basically, 49 up to 68% they were overvalued. So that was super much. 
Drop- and this is 2007 that you're talking about, right? Absolutely, 2007. Okay. The metric that is now deviation from price income ratio, historical price income ratio. So this metric showed 83% correlation with the actual drops that happened post-2007. So that is an analysis that I did. That for me was super useful finding for my own investment because I felt, okay, that's really, really a good way to know what could happen at least once a peak in the market gets reached. So markets, like the ones I mentioned, that were overvalued, they had substantial drops, like 45 to 56%. And then markets which were not undervalued, they didn't. So that was very interesting. So I would say if one defines an overvalued market with greater than 10% deviation from its historical price income ratio, those terms. So what happened is that the median price drop then was 22%, and then the median valuation was 26%. So it was like pretty close. And then if we take fairly valued markets, that would be, let's say, between 0 and 10%. Let's say they had a much smaller drop of 11%. And the most interesting thing, and I'm going to relate to where I see things today, but the most interesting thing was markets that were undervalued. And when I say markets, that's at the state level. So markets that were undervalued, for example, at the time, Texas was actually an example. So Texas was 5% undervalued in 2007. So the drop that happened post the peak was only 4% at the state level. So for all states that were undervalued, which were, I think, about 12 states at the time, the average drop was 4%. That is solid. So we have the biggest real estate price drop in U.S. recorded price history. And yet if markets were undervalued within this measure, in those terms, they dropped only 4%. Now, 4% was also the median income drop in the U.S. at the time. That's interesting. So actually, in valuation terms, they basically didn't drop. So they dropped on, on income, but not purely on valuation terms. So that was, that was, for me, a very big finding because that was indicative of if we have markets that are undervalued now, let's say we reached a recession. In June was the official declaration of a recession. Yep market could go on substantially forward. And I'm not specifically bearish here at all. But again, just saying in the event we reach peak a year from now, two years from now, 10 years from now, whenever that is. So markets that are undervalued at the state level at the time, I don't think they're going to drop much. And then when there is a recovery, they don't have as far to make up because they were undervalued during the worst of times. That is correct. And again, Texas would be a great example. So it was actually undervalued. And then it was, in fact, among the very top performers afterwards. Yeah. I bought a single family house in Dallas, Duncanville specifically, in 2009 for $76,000. And I sold it in October of 2019 for $175,000 or something like that. Well, we know the fundamentals for Texas. It's a great market, it's population growth, etc. It's absolutely outstanding. But I would say, yeah, markets that are undervalued, they could perform really well afterwards as well. There could be a reason that they were undervalued because of genuine weakness. So that can be as well. And they can have subsequently, they're undervalued, but they always stay undervalued. They sort of have weak performance. So that's also possible. So the big question is what's undervalued right now based on this metric, (laughs) right? Okay. So right now, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Most U.S. states are actually undervalued. The only overvalued states right now are the following. So Idaho, Idaho is the only super sharply overvalued. So I had like 22% overvalued. And there are certain cities that are more overvalued than others. 
boys Idaho is I believe like 33% overbought. Oh man, that stinks. I just did a passive investment in Boise. <laughs> oh really? I'm not actively buying there. My company isn't, but I passively invested in, I think it was Boise or somewhere in Idaho for sure. Okay. Well, look, another thing to move on that <laughs> actually. So this only matters once the peak gets reached. Okay. So if it takes five or 10 years, so your investment in Idaho is going to be among the best performing investments chances are because to the peak, real estate has super big momentum. Another thing that I've seen, like in real estate markets, there is autocorrelation. So if returns were high last year, they may be high this year. In fact, I think like most states, they have like 70% autocorrelation and things like that. So you can get the next year return to be high if it was high last year, some stuff like that. So again, if you invest in Idaho, that's not really necessarily a mistake just because it's overvalued. It's going to be the strongest performer. It's going to continue mm. being the strongest performer until it reaches a peak in the cycle. And at that point, the subsequent drop would be probably in line with the valuation. All right. Idaho, where else? So you could exit at the right time, you know? <laughs> well, and, I'll just hope that they do. I'll share this with them and mention this to them. But as a passive investor, I have no control over when the exit happens. Absolutely. Okay. I understand. This is what I see now that's specifically for Idaho. Now, and there are a few other places now. I would not be too worried, but the strong performing markets are mildly overvalued. So if we take like Nevada, Colorado, Arizona, I see 12 to 17% overvalued. And then the states of Washington, Texas, and Florida are like 10, 11% overvalued. Now, that's not Texas or Florida. Okay, those are like the big markets, the best markets, I would say. You know, they're like truly outstanding. And that said, again, if they're 10, 11% overvalued, is it not the time to invest there? No, they're the best markets. They will grow the most for these years. This is sort of a, a number to keep at the, the back of one's mind that in the end, if, if this number gets higher from 11%, it may reach 30% at some point or something like that. We never know. So if we're at peak of cycle, that would be something to look for, to watch for, because drops tend to correlate the most to that. Now, those are the overvalued states, actually. So how is Idaho compared to Texas? What are the numbers? 23% to what percent? Yeah, Idaho 22, Texas 11. 11. Okay. And 11 is a normal thing. And during a normal market, it's not a big deal. It's a strong performing market. There's a lot of competition. People are buying very much there, obviously. In 2007, what was the most overvalued? We're saying market, but really it's state. So what was the most overvalued state in 2007? Yes. So that was very different. So that was California 68%. Wow. What was around 22% in 2007? Around 22% were many states at the time. For example, New York State was 24%. What was around 11% in 2007? Okay, the 11% I see Vermont. Vermont. I don't want investments in Texas to be associated to investments in Vermont. <laughs> that doesn't give me the warm and fuzzies. Again, honestly, I am personally, I think I'm a supporter of big states. Big investment, those are the strongest markets. I'm not going to debate that by mm -hmm. mere valuations. It's just at the peak of cycle, that's the only time that it's going to matter. Those are the markets that are going to perform the strongest, and that's it. And when you say the peak of the cycle, how do you define the peak of the cycle? Because right now, a lot of real estate investors would be saying we're going through some tough times currently. Well, that is a good question. 
use again 2007 as an example. So that would be the peak of cycle would be a very different date in every single region, in every single state or county would be a different date. So in some places it happened in the second quarter of 2007, in some places it happened in 2005, in fact. But how's it defined? It's purely prices reaching a peak and having a substantial drop afterwards or a certain drop afterwards that maybe takes two to five years to reach to a bottom. Got it. So we really don't know what the peak is until after it's happened for some time. And then we have to go back and say, oh, well, that was the peak a year ago or two years ago, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we would not know. So there's no timing prediction at all. For example, if I say Idaho is overvalued, there's no timing predictions to does it need to drop if it's overvalued? No, it can stay like that for a while. And in fact, there are different scenarios that overvaluation can even resolve. Okay, so one is price correction, but that's not the only one. We could have a reduced price growth would be the second scenario, for example. So let's say overvalued. So because of that, okay, in the future, it's going to experience comparatively less growth mm-hmm. in prices, just so that incomes catch up. And then say the third one, prices may even continue to be super, super strong, but incomes experience a sort of super growth. So they are even stronger. And then in the end, incomes and prices catch up. And even though, let's say, Idaho is overvalued, then it gets resolved and it's no longer. So there are different scenarios. It's not really that. It's just what I've seen and my strong senses. Mm-hmm. If we reach a peak at some point, that's the thing that I'm going to personally look at in terms of where prices are going to go. And it's the most predictive metric at points of change in the market cycle, I feel. Now, the metric, this is just price income ratios. It sounds simple. It can actually be improved. I've been working on some improvements that reflect housing shortage. Mm-hmm. That seems particularly useful at county level or like specific cities because cities, it's very interesting the way like people speak about places like San Francisco, for example. You say, okay, San Francisco is really expensive. Like, and they, they even kind of, as if pointing to, okay, maybe prices should drop there because it's really expensive. But that's not how it works. It's so supply, San Francisco, supply and demand, right? Right, it's supply and demand, right? And the fact that San Francisco is highly inaffordable does not make it overvalued. So there are places that have experienced certain housing shortage that have become shifted upwards in their affordability, so to say. So that's what happens in big cities. So they have been previously much more affordable. Prices to incomes have been, let's say, five times. And at some point, they're maybe 15 times. Now, that happened gradually. That happened with insufficient housing, active population growth, etc. But at that point of time, once it's already at 15, the affordability, well, that's a place that's not affordable. But now it's going to be gauged on its being overvalued or not, based on how affordability changes. It's not going to be just because absolutely not affordable that that's going to drive if it's overvalued. It's going to be if it's unaffordable relative to certain historical levels on some, let's say, like a moving window of time, let's say, something like that. So that's it. So that can be improved. I've worked out a measure that measure that reflects that. I feel that's even more useful because, okay, then you have pretty much most of the drivers of real estate included in that. So you have incomes, you have population, you have housing supply. Mm-hmm. It uh, becomes pretty comprehensive. I feel one needs to have a shorter time window to get, I believe, a very high 88% correlation when you use like a five-year window when including housing shortage as well. But I feel it's not so safe. 
the simple measure that is here is very powerful. It worked really well then. I feel it would work at a future point as well. I'm grateful that you came on the show and talked about this and your findings. We need to wrap up really quick. What's one thing a listener should do with this information who is an investor and looking to identify where they're going to invest next? One thing they should do if they're risk averse, so if they want to be protected from a price drop within the markets they're investing in, they can reach to me or they can do the similar calculations themselves and basically determine markets that are currently undervalued if they want to be protected from a price drop in the event we reach a peak. So if they do invest in markets that are undervalued, it's going to be a very low likelihood that a price drop happens there. Let's say at the state level, at the state level. Now, within specific small geographies, it is possible that a drop happens because there it's very difficult to predict. Have people moving from one city to another, etc. But I would say like people who are risk averse should invest in well-performing markets. So markets that have good price performance, which are nevertheless currently undervalued to be protected from a price drop. We talked about the overvalued states, and you said most U.S. states are undervalued, but I don't think I asked you what state is the most undervalued. What are the top three? The top three currently are Illinois, Connecticut, and Arkansas. Now, Illinois. Huh. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know about yeah. Illinois and Connecticut, <laughs> people investing there. I would not suggest one should invest there just because they're undervalued. Those are the markets that also have weaknesses and that obviously, mm-hmm. and that's, I know, Connecticut clearly has all the demographic weaknesses at its disposal. So I would not suggest that. I would say markets that are undervalued, but they performed well. So if we take, for example, Indiana, they are 6% undervalued, but they're 27% above the previous peak in 2007. So they have done well in the market cycle. So that would be my focus in that sense for small investors. Again, for people who are doing big projects, syndication, et cetera, I do believe the big markets are the best. One would have to kind of, of course, be somewhat cautious at some point. If it does become more overvalued, I would say for now, it's still at good levels in terms of overvaluation. That's helpful. Thank you, Stefan. How can the best ever listeners learn more about you? Thank you. Well, they can reach to me on LinkedIn. So Stefan Svetkov on LinkedIn, or they can send me an email at stefan.svetkov at Yahoo. So that's the best way to reach to me. I have a YouTube channel. I run also a meetup series. It's called Finance Meets Real Estate in New York City. So those are some ways to get to me. Stefan, thanks for being on the show. I hope you have a best ever weekend. Talk to you again soon. You too. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template. Are you ready to close more deals and officially seal your financial freedom? The Dwellin Show with Ola Dantis discloses the most innovative real estate investing strategies to kickstart your quest to financial freedom. Go listen at com forward slash show. That's com forward slash show.